Thank you. All right. Let's get her done. You guys doing good? Well, we're having a good time. Let me introduce my wife. Babe, would you stand? This is my wife. Um, yeah, we, uh, I met Kathy when she was 12, and we got engaged when she was 13, and that's actually a true story. And we got married when she was 17, and so we've been married for 32 years, and we have seven, four kids and seven grandkids. And we have videos of the grandkids in the back, and you'll want to buy those. They're a little bit more expensive than our CDs, and you'll, you, you know why that would be. So, well, we're going to have some fun. I guess you guys are all right with having fun, huh? I think God's into fun. I mean, the first miracle Jesus ever did was make wine. I like that. It set a precedence for everything else. I like, you know, Jesus, Jesus, you know, Mary says, Jesus, they're out of wine. And he said, what does that have to do with me? You know, I always wondered why, how Mary knew that Jesus made wine unless he was doing it at home. Because it says it was his first public miracle. <laughs> oh, it's just a thought. <laughs> That's a good word right there, though, wasn't it? For all you wine bibbers. Yeah, well, I believe drunk is good, but very drunk is better. I'm talking about the Holy Ghost, of course. So, yep. And Hebrews says that Jesus was anointed with joy above his companions. You know what that means? He was happier than the people he hung with. Which either he ever, maybe he hung out with very depressed people or he was... <laughs> I mean, you can always look good depending on who you compare yourself to. That's another good word right there. We got to the message yet. <laughs> Well, you guys have already had David and Graham, so you've already done deep. So I figured we'd do wide. <laughs> you know what I mean? Whatever. Anyway, this just came out right before we got here called Developing a Supernatural Lifestyle. And um, I like this book. I read almost the whole thing. <laughs> and uh, I wrote it. Um, it has chapters in it. The first chapter is called History Makers. And the second chapter is called Victims, Vampires, and Voices. The third chapter is called Life and the Kingdom's a Bunch of Bull. <laughs> the fifth chapter is called Living in Graceland. How many know Elvis is dead, but Jesus is alive? Yeah. The tenth chapter is Weapons of Mass Construction. The 11th chapter is getting in the flesh. <laughs> and the 12th chapter is wisdom from another world. You know, if you, if you um, have any desire to develop a supernatural lifestyle, I recommend this book very highly. I like the person who wrote it. <laughs> and um, let's just pray and we'll get started. Jesus, thank you for what you're doing in us and through us and to us. <laughs> Lord, I pray that you would mess these people up. 
I'm serious. Lord, I pray that you would mess these people up, that you'd have no mercy on these people. That you would give them pressed down, shaken together, running out all over. And Lord, that they would have an encounter with you that would forever change them, like Peter and John in the boat. Lord, that they would have an encounter with you, would alter their occupation, would alter their mindsets. Lord, it would, al- it would alter everything about them. Holy Spirit, we just pray that the Word would become flesh in us. And Lord, I just pray for that right now, that you just release, that you would release impartation, that powerful things would happen tonight, that people would hear things. Lord, I pray that they would hear things I never even said. They would see things that they've never seen so they can do things they've never done. Lord, I pray for that right now. Just begin to release Holy Spirit. Come on. Holy Spirit, we just invite you to do your thing. We just, Lord, we invite you to do, we just pray that you would just do miracles as we preach. It'd be like when Peter preached to Cornelius that you just touched him and interrupted the message. Lord, we just pray that you would just interrupt the message when I'm done. <laughs> Amen. I want to um, I want to just read you uh, a page of this book because I want to talk to you about this tonight. The first uh, chapter is called History Makers, and let me just read you the introduction, a little bit of the introduction. Every so often in the course of history, there are individuals born who defy common reason and statistical explanation. These are God's great ones who break the tether of their generational expectations and rise to the high call that seems to echo from somewhere far beyond the grave. The prophets of old peered into the future and spoke of these violent ones who would force their way into the kingdom, take hold of heaven, and pull it down to earth. These reigning saints refused to have their exploits be a mere reflection of the past, but instead break the gravitational barriers of naysayers and doubters, journeying far beyond the boundaries of reason into places where no one has ever gone before. Ultimately, they capture the prize of the upward call of God that lies in Christ Jesus. These are God's history makers, the Lord's chosen people, His mighty men, His holy nation. Many of us can feel the vacuum of this vortex drawing our hearts into this divine destiny. We, feel, we find our inner man longing and stirring and burning for the great adventure. Live or die, we must press through the walls of mediocrity and find the promised land of our souls. We live with the passion to be numbered among those who gained fame in the halls of heaven and are feared among the prison guards of hell. If we're going to walk as God's ruling royalty, it's encumbered upon us to pray unceasingly, give sacrificially, dream unreasonably, serve wholeheartedly, love unashamedly, walk innocently, believe undoubtedly, and live powerfully. These are the qualities of the body of these are the qualities of the body of Christ in all her glory. She's to be called the most she's to be the most creative force on the face of the earth. Therefore we must not allow ourselves to become known for our boxes. That is famous for what we don't do because of our righteous constrictions. Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, and Benjamin Franklin had certain moral values that restrained their behavior, but they were famous for what they did, not for what they didn't do. It'd be tragic if the most creative people on the face of the earth are allowed to become, allow, uh, allow themselves to be reduced to rent-a-cops guarding a box, the Ark of the Covenant, that God vacated 2,000 years ago. The truth is, if we don't take our rightful place in the earth, we will relegate sinners, void of the mind of Christ, barred from the wisdom of the ages, wandering in utter darkness, to be in the most, bright, the most brilliant light, start over, to be in the most brilliant minds of our time. If the brightest light in the world belongs to those locked in darkness, how great, is, how great would the darkness be in our world? 
Something's fundamentally wrong with this picture, but this is our brain on religion. Religion is like kryptonite to Superman. Religion can conform the most righteous reigning saints into mindless zombies, puppets, repeating someone else's convictions they don't even understand themselves. Let me just read you the last part of this. The world is crying out in distress, and we must not miss this most Kairos moment, the opportunity of the ages. In the late 60s, the Beatles took America by storm. In a few short years, the four boys from Liverpool altered the course of our nation's history. Soon after, the world was swept into their wake of their anointing. All the while, they were singing, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it wasn't long before the Fab Four started to experience a crisis in their own souls and began to cry out in desperation, help, I need somebody, help. Not just anyone, help. You know, I need someone. When I was younger, so much younger than today, I never needed anyone's help in any way. But now these days are gone, and I'm not so self-assured. Now I find I've changed my mind, and I've opened up the doors. Help me if you can, I'm feeling down. I do appreciate you coming around. Help me get my feet back on the ground, won't you? Please, please help me. But their cry for help fell on deaf ears in the sanctuary of hope. And soon they were calling Hare Krishna, their sweet Lord. The church can't afford to fall asleep in the harvest today, as we've done so many times in the past. We are, supposed to re we are not supposed to reflect our culture. We are commissioned to transform it. Yeah. <clears throat> That's a good word right there. Who wants to have this book? Yeah. They're for sale in the bookstore. Here, give this to somebody. Hey, do we have a single mom? Are you a single mom? Can you hand that to her? I want to talk to you about the love of God tonight. And uh, I think that probably you guys have been hearing a lot about that already. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 19, Jesus quoted the law, the, a word out of the Old Testament, Honor your mother and father, and you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. How many know that Jesus said, Love your neighbor as you love yourself? That you become a standard. The standard in which you love yourself determines the standard in which you love everyone else. In uh, John 15:12, Jesus actually increased that in the, New Test in the New Covenant when he said, This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. How many know that love, the way that Jesus loves you is even greater than the way that you love yourself? And so we're commanded to, to love each other as we love ourselves. Turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Start from verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name, that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power in His Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you may be, and, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, everybody say in love, love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth. And to know the love of God, which surpasses knowledge, and that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly, more than we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. I want you to notice that Paul says this. He says, I want you to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge. How many of you understand that to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge means that you're going to know by experience what you could never know through your intellect? Your heart will take you places your mind will never go. 
And God wants to begin to open up new dimensions to us so that we begin to realize that we have this revelation that God actually loves us and He wants to open up new dimensions that our, heart, that our head no longer becomes the standard in which we understand the love of God. You know, have, you ever, have you ever had an experience with God where your, where your brain where it just blows your, your brain? Your brain's like, what's going on? We don't know what's happening here. Somebody give us some information. We're dying over here. Hey, I think we're dying. We're dying. We're dying. Someone tell us what we're doing. Don't go any further. Caution, caution, caution. How many of you ever had that happen to you? It wasn't exactly like that. You know, um, Jesus said in John 15, I no longer call you slaves... Because a slave does not know, everybody say no, what his master is doing. But I call you friends. For all things I have heard from the Father, I have what? Made known to you. Everybody say all things. All See, one of the things that's happening in the body of Christ is that we're moving from slavery to friendship. And how many of you know that when you come to Christ, you come as a slave? Romans 6 says that we were slaves to sin, and then we become slaves to righteousness. So when we come into the kingdom, the first thing we learn is how to obey. Jesus said, I call you my friends if you do what I command you to do. How many of you know that you can't move into friendship until you got slavery down? Until you know how to do what you're told, you can't move into friendship, because Jesus said, I call you my friends if you do what I command you to do. So your friend happens to be God. You can't ever forget that. But listen, slavery, some people come, they come to Bethel, they come to different places like that, and they say, how do you guys get all this revelation? I mean, I read the same Bible you read, and I don't get that stuff out of it. And one day I was thinking about that. You, you know where revelation comes? It comes from, from a friendship with God. See, your identity, changing your role in relationship to God opens up the doors of revelation. Because Jesus said, I no longer call you slaves because a slave does not know what his master's doing. But I call you friends because all things I've heard from the Father I've made known to you. How many know that, that friendship opens doors to all things? And here's my point. We're moving from sacrifice... Because one of the main core values of slavery is sacrifice. We're moving from sacrifice to passion. <laughs> That's a good word. You just have to think about that. You know, I was um, doing a conference with David Hogan. Do you know who David Hogan is? I was doing a conference with David Hogan and Roland Baker. <laughs> Talk about intense. <laughs> Believe it or not, I was like the mellow one. <laughs> and, and David is so funny. David's funny he try, but because he tries not to be. How many of you have ever heard David Hogan? Oh, man. He like, just when he walks in the room, tension grows. Like, he, they, they fast every other day, all, their whole life. And in order to be one of his elders, you have to have raised the dead. If you haven't raised a dead person, you can't be on the eldership team. Which would totally disqualify Bill. 
Uh, no, me too. Uh, <laughs> whatever. Anyway. <laughs> oh, my goodness. You know, my, our students go down to the morgue to practice. I'm serious, they do. Oh, we went down to the morgue today, we practiced, and did anyone come to life? No. I tell them, when I, if, listen, if I die, do not, do not raise me from the dead. Wouldn't it be a drag for them to get you halfway back? <laughs> Just like your brain dead, but you're still breathing or something, or... I told him, you know, listen, I'm not afraid of death. I'm just afraid of pain. And once I get through that once, I don't want you to bring me back and have me do that again. <laughs> that wasn't my theology. It was a joke, actually. <laughs> Sorry. What was I talking about? Oh, David Hogan. So we were doing this conference with David Hogan, and David Hogan was telling stories about being you know, beat up. He's been beat up like seven times left for dead, and he's telling all these stories about you know, being back at the Indians in the, in the, uh, in the uh, jungles of Mexico, and how th- th- they gathered around him, and they beat him, and they left him for dead, and they killed his pastor, and, and when they ran off, and God rose him from the dead, and he's just going on like that, you know, it's like, and, and, and then Roland got up and told stories about Africa. <sighs> I know, and by the time they, the two of them got done, you know, like, the whole room was like, I don't think I'm a Christian. <laughs> and I was the next session. I'm like, well, I've never been beat up. And... And I just started talking about, I said, you know, I said, you, you, you guys come here, we come here, and we hear these stories, and we believe that, and, and, and it occurs to us that, 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 um, that David and, and that Roland are, you know, sacrificing for God. But I'm going to tell you something, when you're in love, it doesn't feel like a sacrifice. See, it, passion always looks like sacrifice to people who have, aren't in love. But when you're in love... It doesn't feel like sacrifice. <laughs> See, when I, when I was young, I, met, I told you, I met Kathy when she was 12. We got engaged when she was 13, and we lived 30 miles apart. And, um, and we, uh, so I was 15. All I had was a motorcycle, and uh, I would go see her. And I have to ride, I had the little Honda 100. <laughs> you meet the nicest people on a Honda. And I would, I, would, uh, I would drive my Honda to her house. See, I only got to see her on the weekends, so I'd drive my Honda to her house. And it, like, you know, we went together for five years before we got married. And it didn't matter if it was raining, it was snowing. Well, it didn't really snow, but I made believe it did. It didn't matter. It didn't matter if it was rain or, 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 or how bad the weather is because i just get on my motorcycle and I would ride to her house and it was too small to ride on the freeways so I had to ride the back roads and I, I'd get there just totally drenched but I wasn't making a sacrifice because I, I love my baby. <laughs> See, have you ever read the Song of Solomon? Like the Psalm of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 7 says, The watchman, the, the Song of Solomon's about, about the, this, this bride and, 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 and Solomon, the bridegroom, 
And he goes to his woman and he knocks on the door and she's in bed and he says, uh, hey, honey, uh, why don't you open the door and let me in? And she's like, well, I'm really sorry, but I'm already in bed and I washed my feet and all that. And he's all right. Well, whatever. This is like the message on steroids Bible. So he leaves, right? You remember this part of the story? You can kind of recognize it. Well, he leaves. And as soon as he leaves, she, she goes, oh, my goodness, what have I done? You know, Mamma Mia, she's an Italian. Mamma Mia, what have I done? And she gets up and she opens the door and she takes off after him. And, 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 the, and the, whole, the whole book of Song Solomon is that they're chasing each other. This is before cell phones. They're chasing each other through the streets. And she's saying, she's saying, you know, have you seen my baby? He, he looked like this and he, he's, a, he's like a gazelle and he jumps over walls. And... <laughs> have you read it? It's in the book, actually. And he's looking for her and he says, have you seen my baby? She looked like this and she got, <laughs> she got rings in her nose and she got the belly button like this and she got all the equipment. Actually, I toned this down. It's a lot more than that. And so they're running through the city. Have you seen my baby? Have you seen my baby? And in chapter 5, she says, Have you seen my baby to the watchman? And the watchman beats her up. That's amazing how many people can take one verse and make the story about sacrifice. <laughs> I don't know if you got that. Oh, you didn't get that? See, the Christian life isn't about sacrifice, it's about passion. If you fall in love with Jesus, you'll meet some watchmen who'll beat you up. It's usually the place, the people who are supposed to be taking care of you, they're usually the ones who beat you up. <laughs> That's a good word, actually. <laughs> you have to think about that. When you get home, you'll, you'll get it. Some of my words are like time capsules. You get the... <laughs> <laughs> Some assembly required. <laughs> have you read the Song of Solomon? Who's, have you noticed like it's a, like it'll say the bride, and then it'll and and then it'll say the bridegroom, and then have you ever noticed like about every fifth, sixth, seventh verse it says for the choir. See, Kathy and I we've been married for. 32 years. We never had a bad day. We've had a bad hour. It takes Kathy a little while to figure out I'm right. <laughs> She's in the front row. Line. I mean, the only thing that our marriage has lacked, honestly, is a choir. I'm serious. Just think of what kind of passion you'd have if you had a choir <laughs> following you around, singing to you while you were like, after you love her. You know, like, ain't no mountain high enough. Ain't no valley low enough. Ain't no river wide enough to keep me from you, babe. I mean, think about what kind of passion you would have if you had a dang choir following you around singing about loving your baby. 
<laughs> That's a good word right there. I was with Graham, I don't know, a few months ago, and we were having lunch together with a couple other guys. And, you know, Graham does what Graham does. He doesn't talk a lot. But when he does, it's usually like worth saying. Now me, I'm an external processor. <laughs> I say things just to see if they're true. <laughs> So we're having lunch, and, and Graham's kind of sitting there quietly. And then Graham says, out of the blue, I don't want to be desperate for God. And then goes back to eating. And I'm thinking, what the heck? And my brain goes, be careful! Be careful, this is Graham Cook. He's wrote 14 books. <laughs> don't, ex don't eternally process right now. <laughs> even a wise man, even a fool is considered wise. He keeps his mouth shut. I keep your mouth shut if I were you. Don't say anything. This is Graham. I could share some testimonies of times you opened your mouth and wish you did it. <laughs> so Graham says, I don't want to be desperate for God. One goes back to eating. I mean, we've been singing songs about being desperate for God for years. I'm going to have to change him. I'm not desperate for God anymore. So I finally get the courage to go, which is the only thing my brain would let me say is, why? I figured that was close, close, safe. So I said, Why? He says, because desperation means that I have a dysfunctional relationship with God. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> That's a really good point, ain't it? And my brain's all, told you, good thing you didn't try. <laughs> good thing you didn't say something. We got out of that one. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> the only reason I give him credit for that is because he's here. I have this new revelation. I don't want to be desperate for God. God spoke to me.
I heard someone preach the other day. It wasn't long ago. He was sharing, the Lord gave me this revelation. He's going on and on. I'm like, that's such bull crap. I told you that at dinner the other night. <laughs> he's preaching my message, and he said God told him that. He did, through me. But I got no credit for it. <laughs> Whatever, sorry. How many know we don't want to be desperate for God because we want, to, we want to be a habitation, not just a visitation. We want to live with passion. We want to be people who are full of passion, not just... A, we don't want to come to an event to find God. We want to come to an event full of God. We want to be people who understand what it is to, to, to live with passion and not just be people who have to, have to live in sacrifice. How many of you know that if I, if I have to like... If I, have to, if, if I have to kiss my wife and it's a sacrifice, there's something wrong with our relationship. How many know that if I hug my wife and it's a sacrifice, how many know there's something wrong with our relationship? I don't want to live out of sacrifice. I want to live out of passion. I don't mean that, that in a Christian life you don't have to make some sacrifices. Come on. But I'm saying I want to primarily live with passion. I want to know what it is to love God so much that it just overflows out of me. And I could go anywhere. And, it, it, you know, I could go to the deepest places of Africa and, you know, and, and eat bugs. <laughs> well, power bars. <laughs> and not think, oh, I'm doing, I'm, oh, man, I'm working so hard for God. I don't want to work for love. I, don't work, I want to work from love. I want, I want everything I do to be an overflow of loving God. And I, I want to love people because, because I love God. And I, wanna, I, don't, I, don't wanna, I don't want my ministry to be a sacrifice. About six months ago, you know, we've been, I mean, things are, I mean, just like all, we're just growing and growing and growing. And our influence is growing. And, and you know, there's, there's good, bad of everything. You know, the Lord told me uh, two years ago, the prophetic word he gave me for our church was that we were going to, we were going to learn to endure the, um, the, the uh, we were going to learn to endure the trials of favor. Because Proverbs says a man will be tested by the favor accorded him. And the Lord said, you've known what it's like to live without favor. Now you're, going to, now you're going to endure the trials of favor. It's great when you have favor, but it's also a responsibility. I remember the first time that I, I spoke and someone gave me money for speaking. I, I want much. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Like someone paid me $27 to speak. Of course, it cost 32 to get there. <laughs> it's just, you know, there's something about, like, people having value for you. And people, you know, people started being attracted to the anointing that's on our lives. And I started realizing that. And I said to God, I said, Lord, please don't give me responsibility where I have no compassion. I don't want to have responsibility for people that I don't have compassion for. I don't want my influence to outgrow my compassion. So, Lord, I need you to enlarge my heart because I never want to minister out of duty or out of sacrifice. Listen, I'm not saying I don't want to make a sacrifice. I'm just saying I don't want my life to be a sacrifice. I want my life to be full of passion. How many of you know, you know, my family is, my, my kids and my family as they were growing up, I want my kids to know, know how to sacrifice, but I don't want my family to be a sacrifice. You know the difference, right? I, I want my kids to know how to sacrifice, but I don't want my family to be a sacrifice. I'm not going to sacrifice my family for, for anybody. And I, I want to live with passion 
so that everything I do is coming from an overflow. And so I started praying about six months ago, five months ago. I said, Lord, I, I, you're, all these people are being attracted to us, and they wear me out. They wear me out, just being honest. They wear me out. I get, I, it's the first time in my life I get tired of people. And, and then, I, and then I'm, I find myself, I found myself ministering out of obligation. Kind of like, well, you get paid to stay late, so you keep praying for people. And I went home one night, and I said, Lord, I don't want to do this. I have never lived, I've never lived out of my life out of sacrifice. And I won't do it now. And so either you, you get rid of some of these people, or you enlarge my heart so that I have passion and compassion for the people that you've given me responsibility for. And what I found is, is that the Lord's increasing my, my passion and my compassion. How many of you are with me? I don't mind making a sacrifice. Everybody has to make sacrifices. I mean, I minister when I'm tired. We all do. We all know what it's like for someone. You know, people's crisis don't happen on a clock. We know that. So you understand what I'm saying. But I'm saying I don't want my whole life to be going from crisis to crisis with, because I don't want my life to be like, I don't want to feel like, okay, I just have to die for Christ. You know, how many of you know that we already died for Christ? And now we're supposed to live for him. <laughs> okay, well, think about that. Hebrews 11, can you turn there? I hope I didn't offend you unless you needed it. <laughs> Verse 11. By faith, even Sarah herself received the ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. I want to talk a little bit about what love does. By faith, by faith, where is it? Oh, there is. By faith, even Sarah herself received the ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Have you ever read the story of Sarah and Abraham? It's a, God says, in the New Testament, it says that Sarah, by faith, Sarah received the ability to conceive. I don't know if you've ever read the story, but that isn't how the story goes. The story goes like this. They're supposed to like have, they get this prophecy that they're going to have this promised child and all the earth's going to be blessed in this promised child. And it goes on for years and, and nothing happens. And, and Sarah thinks that it's Abraham's problem. One day they get in a family argument. You remember this? They get in a family argument and she goes, here, well, take my, take my mistress and see, take my servant and see how this works out for you. Because I'm sure she's convinced that she's not the problem. There must have been a lot of big family argument about whose fault it was that the promise wasn't happening. And so... She, he, has, he has, you know, the act of marriage with Hagar, and she gets pregnant, and Sarah gets mad and chases her out. Remember that? And then years later, God comes to Abraham and Sarah, and Sarah's cooking, and God says, you know, at this time next year, you're going to have a child. And Sarah overhears him and laughs, sarcastically. And God goes, good, the child will be named Isaac. She laughed. There's nowhere in the story where she believed. <laughs> Hebrews says, By faith, even Sarah herself received the ability to conceive, for she considered him faithful who had promised. Here's my point. The blood of Jesus rewrites your history. <laughs> the, 
You know, the Bible says that God forgets your sins. He remembers your sins no more. Listen, if you live a whole life of sin before you knew God, does God forget those years? So let's say you lived in sin from, for 20 years. When God thinks of you, does He have a blank spot in the, times that you, in the years that you were a sinner? I don't know. But I think what He does is He rewrites your history. And He goes, Man, you were so faithful. And you go, God, that doesn't look like me. That looks like you. And He goes, That's right. You were in me. How many of you know that love rewrites your history? That God views you through the blood of Jesus and you're like, you're unfaithful. You, you give your husband to a mistress. He comes to you in person. God comes to your house in person, knocks on your door, has dinner with you and says you're going to have a child. And you even laugh at that. And God goes, oh, she was so faithful. She's amazing. That's why she had a child because she believed me. And you go, God, when did I do that? He goes, when you were in me. See, some of us don't like ourselves. And God goes, you're amazing. You're like, oh, God, I failed you. And he goes, I don't remember that. Well, God, don't you remember when I did this and this? Well, I don't remember the story quite like that. And all of a sudden, God starts to recount the same story to you. And you go, God, that doesn't sound like me. That sounds like you. That's right. You were hidden in me. How many know that you didn't get to heaven? You didn't get into the kingdom by your works. You got in through the Trojan horse of Jesus Christ. You were hidden in Christ. The law and the prophets. Jesus said that the law and prophets were preached until John. And since, the, since that day, everyone's forcing their way into the kingdom. And violent men are taking the kingdom by force. Do you know what happened? The law said, the law said, you can't come in here. You're not good enough. The prophets prophesied judgments against you, and they said, you can't come in here. You deserve judgment. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you don't enter the kingdom, and you stand at the door, and you resist anyone who tries to get in. How many know the law said you can't come in? The prophets said you can't come in. But then, the cross became a violent act of grace. And it broke down the doors of the law and the doors of the prophets. And you got thrust into the kingdom through a violent act of grace. You didn't get in on your own account. You got in on His. You know why? Because He loved you. Now let me let's make it really clear. He likes you too. <laughs> I remember years ago, my mother was a cheerleader, the head cheerleader in high school. My father was the captain of the football team. And in 1954, my mother got pregnant with me out of wedlock. And in those years, at least in America, you didn't tell anybody you were pregnant. And so my mother came home pregnant, and my grandfather found out that she was pregnant and he disowned her and he said don't you ever come home you are not my daughter stay away from me get away from my house and don't ever come back and don't use my last name 
My mother and father ran away and got married, but they were still not allowed to have any association with the family. And then one day, about a year into, a year after I was born, my father went to my grandfather's house and parked down the street so my grandfather wouldn't know he was there. And he came to the back door of the house. He knocked on the door and my grandfather came to the door. And before my grandfather could send him away, my father dropped to his knees and grabbed his legs and begged for his forgiveness. And it was good that my grandfather forgave him because we got allowed back in the family and two years later, my father drowned in Anderson Dam. And the story goes that it was raining that night. Uh, my father, who was a phys ed teacher and a football player, got drafted by the NFL, actually. The boat tipped over, and my father saved my cousin, who was with him, swam him back to shore and went back for the boat and never came home. They arranged a search team that night and the, at midnight, and they went out in the rain in a boat dragging a hook at the bottom of the lake. And they found my father at 1 o'clock in the morning. They sent my grandfather, pulled him up in the boat, took him by the shoulders and swore that he would raise us. And it's a good thing that he made that commitment because my mother married two years later to a man who didn't like me. He said, you're the trash that came with the treasure. And he beat me, and I remember times when he beat me, and he'd take my pants off, and he'd beat me with the buckle of his belt, and blood would be running down my legs, and my mother would be pulling him off me. But my grandfather always loved me. And my grandfather used to take me places, and we lived with my grandfather for a while. And I remember when I was about eight or nine years old, my grandfather would always go to the hardware store. Now, I've got to describe my grandfather to you. My grandfather's about five foot six or seven, tall, and just about as wide. <laughs> he ain't fat. He's a farmer. And he's just stout. And he always wears coveralls. You know what coveralls are? And he doesn't wear underwear. <laughs> now, you would know that if you met him because he doesn't button up his coveralls. And my grandfather had a disease in his gums and he had all of his teeth pulled except for his four eye teeth. And they built dentures around his four eye teeth. And he didn't like his dentures. He said they hurt him, so he'd carry them in his coveralls in the front right here, sticking out in case he wanted to eat something. And he'd go like this. With his, as a nervous habit, he'd go like this when his fangs would stick out. And my grandfather never really walked. He just kind of waddled. And he drove a 53 Ford, a black 53 Ford his whole life that I can remember. And so my grandfather would always take me to the hardware store with him. And when, he, when we'd go, my mother would say, you better not ask your grandfather for anything. You understand that? I'll say, uh-huh. She said, you better not. I'll say, okay. So we'd get down to the hardware store, and my grandfather said, you know, you just look around, and when I get done, I'll come find you. I said, all right. So, on one day, I remember this one, we were in the hardware store, my grandfather was doing something, plumbing something, and I was looking around, I went over by the hammers, and I saw the hammers. Oh, 
My grandfather gets done, he finds me, and so he comes up and he says, What are you doing? I said, I'm looking at the hammers. He said, Do you want one of those hammers? I said, No. He said, Did your mother tell you not to ask me for anything? I said, Uh huh. <laughs> he said, Just pick out any hammer you want. It's yours. All right. So I got me a blue Stanley hammer. Still remember it to this day. I get home, I walk in the house, and mom got me a hammer. She said, did you ask your grand? No, Mom, I told him not. I didn't want it. He, he insisted on buying it. And then for two days, my mom worked during the day, so I was home a lot by myself. So for two days, I, would, I hammered everything, every nail I could find. <laughs> and finally, I ran out of nails to hammer. So I decided to build me a go-kart. So my mom's gone, my grandfather's gone to work, and, and I needed some wood. So I'm looking around for some wood. I can't find any wood anywhere, so I go over to the side of the garage from my grandfather's garage, and I saw wood. So I tore the siding off the side of the garage as high as I could reach, and I built me a go-kart. I went and got the lawnmower wheels off the lawnmower. <laughs> And I nailed them to my go-kart, and my mother came home. So she comes home, and I said, Mom, look, I, I built me a go-kart. She said, well, that's good. Where'd you get the wood? I said, from the garage. She looked up, and the sun was shining through the garage. She said, your grandfather's going to kill you. You are dead. Do you understand this? You are dead. You're going to tell your grandfather what you, where'd you get the wheels <laughs> from the lawnmower? You are dead. You are dead. You are dead. You're going to tell your grandfather, and you're going to beat him when you get home. I'll tell you that. So my grandfather comes rolling up in his 53 Ford and gets out of the, the car. And my mother grabs him by the nap of the neck intentionally to leave bruises, you know, so that you'll remember. They're called monuments of discipline. <laughs> And she brings me over to my grandfather, and she says, Tell him what you did. Oh, I made a go-kart. He says, Oh, that's a nice go-kart. Where'd you get the wood? From the garage. <laughs> he looks up. Did you take the wood off the side of the garage? Uh-huh. <laughs> he goes, Oh, we don't need that wood on there anyway. We got some plywood. We'll just put it over it. You won't even see it. Where'd you get the wheels? From the lawnmower. He goes, come on, let's go to the hardware store and get you some wheels. So my, yep. my mother's all. I'm like. A few years later, my grandfather bought a ranch, a farm actually, and um, uh, about, about 100 miles from us, and I come from a Spanish family. I don't know if anybody comes from a Spanish family, but my grandparents are from Spain. And in a Spanish family, you honor the elders. And that means that Thanksgiving and Christmas, you go to see them even if you don't want to. Like, my grandfather does believe in sacrifice. <laughs> and so everybody came to the ranch twice a year, and all my cousins, and all my cousins are girls. So we're all like teenagers together, and they're all city girls. And we go, and they go to the farm. And I'm living on the farm, 
Um, and my grandfather, he's, and my, my family, they're not, they're not believers. They weren't believers at the time. So they'd have a little too much to drink and stuff. And, and, they, and so my grandfather, they're all having this big party with all my family. And, and I got seven cousins. They're all there. And so my grandfather takes the keys from the flatbed truck and he throws them to me. And he goes, you guys go have some fun. And so my grandfather had an old 53 two-ton truck with a flatbed on it. And I was, I, I was allowed to drive it. You know, I was 15 I was allowed to drive it on the, on, the, on the ranch. So all the girls get in the back of the truck, and I take off in the truck, and we go down the hill as fast as that truck could go, 47 miles an hour. Seven teenagers hanging off the back, and we're going through the dirt as fast as we can go, and we get stuck in the mud. So I say to the girls, I say, hey, you need to get off and push so we can get out of the mud. They're like... All right. So they jump off the back of the truck, you know, and I gun it with the dual wheels, covered them with mud. <laughs> They're chasing the truck. You're dead. I'm telling your grandpa. You get in the truck. So we get in the truck and we go down this dirt road as fast as we can, fall in the river. And I forgot the road was washed out. So, whoa, we stop. And there's a road on, there's the river on one side and a cliff on the other. So we have to back up two miles. So I put it in reverse and I tell my cousin Denise, who's in the cab, I say, open the door and make sure we don't go off the end there. She said, all right. So I put it in reverse and back up as fast as go, four miles an hour. And uh, while we're backing up, the, well, the, I don't know what happened, but the tree grabbed, uh, grabbed, the, <laughs> grabbed the door and ripped it off the truck. It was hanging like by a third of an hinge, and it, and it bent it in half, and it was... My cousin Denise looks over at me, and she goes, Your grandpa's going to kill you. You are dead. So we stopped, and I told the girls, Listen, we're not going to tell anyone we did this. We're just going to park the truck. Okay, we're just going to go up, and we're going to park the truck, and we're going to pretend like this didn't happen. So we get back up to the top of the hill where the house is and the party's going on. And as soon as we stop, the girls start yelling, Chris wrecked the truck! Chris wrecked the truck! My uncle comes out. One of his daughters is on the back of the truck. And he comes out and he looks at the truck. And he goes, You're dead. Your grandfather's going to kill you. You are going to get a beating when your grandfather gets here. You understand? I mean, you could have killed somebody. You are dead. You're never going to drive again. You are going to go to prison. You are dead. <laughs> My grandfather comes out. <laughs> What's going on? And he's had a couple too many to, to drink. What's going on out here? He looks at the truck. What happened? <laughs> he goes, oh, you know, I've been thinking for a long time, we don't need doors on this truck. He, says, he said, get some wrenches and take both doors off. It takes too long to open and close the door. This is, this is a ranch truck. A ranch truck shouldn't have doors on it. My uncle's all. I'm all. My grandfather bought me a Honda 90. You guys remember what a Honda, those little trail 90s? 
And so um, when I got my chores all done, my grandfather would work during the day at Hershey's and at night at 3 o'clock he'd come home and he'd give me a list of chores that I had to get up at 8 and get my chores done. When I got my chores done, my time was mine. I could do whatever I wanted. So my grandfather built me a treehouse. Now, I don't mean it was a treehouse. I mean it was a treehouse. I mean it had a roof on it. It had a sink. It had a toilet. Now, you wouldn't want to be underneath because of this. It had a highly innovative <laughs> disposal system. It's kind of an air dry kind of thing. <laughs> so, so my grandfather was at work, and so I uh, got done with my chores early, and, and I went down, owned my motorcycle down, and there was a tree that had grown up through my, through my tree house. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to pull that tree out. So I went back up to the top of the, the, the hill where my grandfather's ranch was. My tree house was down at the bottom. And I went and got a bunch of chain. I went back down to the tree, and I tied the chain around the bottom of the tree, a tree about this big and about 30 feet high, and I tied it to my motorcycle. <laughs> and I backed up to the tree, and I took off. I flew over the handlebars, I landed in the dirt, and when I landed in the dirt, I was mad. So I get up, and I walk over that tree, I said, you messed with the wrong guy. And I drove my motorcycle up, back up the hill as fast as I go, and I, found, and I got all the chain I could get. I looked like Rambo. I got 300 feet of chain. And I went back down, and I thought, well, I needed some leverage. So I took the, and I, I took the chain, put it around my neck, and I, I climbed to the top of the tree. It took about 20 minutes, and I tied the chain to the top of the tree. And the treehouse was like right at the end of a, the end of a, a, a hill. And there was a, uh, actually a bridge that went from the hill over. So I took, my, I took the chain, I tied it to my motorcycle, and I pulled my motorcycle backwards all the way up the hill. So my idea was that I would get up full speed and I would pass that thing and I would break it off. <laughs> yep. Yepper. Get her done. See, you guys obviously don't understand leverage. So what? Uh, so I start down the hill, wah, wah, wah. I get into fourth gear by the time I pass that tree. Wah. I pass the tree, wah. and all of a sudden, looking in the rear of me, I can still remember the little tree went, wah, bent all the way to the ground, and I flew off the handlebars about 100 feet from the motorcycle, and, the motor and it landed on my back, and the motorcycle goes, wah. Three hundred feet in the air, and it lands at the top of the mountain. Now I'm really mad. I get up, I dust myself off, I walk over that tree. I said, "I am." I see. I, I used other language. I said, "I am. 
I'm frustrated with you. <laughs> and I, have, I walk up the hill, and I'm really mad now. And I go up and I get my grandfather's tractor, which I'm not supposed to use when he's not there. And I get all the chain, and I get on the tractor, and I drive it down the hill as fast as I can go, about seven miles an hour. And I take the forks, and I put it on both sides of the tree, and I take all the chain, and I wrap it around the forks in the, in the, in the tree, and I get in the tractor, and I rev it up, and I pull the, the lever, and it goes, and it bends the fork straight down. And as soon as it did, I came into my right mind. <laughs> oh, my grandpa is going to kill me. <laughs> so I drive the tractor back up the hill nice and slow, bring all my chain, and I, I, I pull it into the garage. I think I'm pulling it in the garage so I won't see it. So I pull in the garage and I pull the, for the lever for the forks to come all the way back and set it down and did it just go, well, oh my God, my grandpa's going to kill me. At 3 o'clock, he gets home, jumps out of his 53 Ford. You can't really call it jump. You'd have to say it was a little slide. <laughs> he gets out of the car. How you doing? How was your day? Right? you get all your chores in? Uh-huh. Are you okay? Uh-huh. Are you sure? Uh-oh. What's wrong? Mm, come here. <laughs> he opens up the garage door. I'll never forget the look on his face as long as I live. What happened? Well, how the tree and water and some blood That's good, you know, because I've been wanting to teach you how to use the torches. And so this would be a really good time for you to learn. Get the torches and let's fix that. All right. Huh. You know what's amazing? Does my grandfather love me? And he didn't even know God. And God says, Jesus said that if you love one another and your love is evil, then how much more does your father love you? I, you know, my grandfather taught me the love of God before I knew God. If my grandfather loved me like that, then how much more does my Heavenly Father love me? So I don't think we get it. I'm convinced that 99.9% .9 of all the world's problems boil down to one thing. You don't know my grandfather loves you. <laughs> and therefore, you don't love you. See, Ephesians says this, Ephesians 5.25 Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her with the washing of the water of the word, 
that he might present himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Listen to this. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves he who loves he who loves his own wife loves himself. It goes on to say that no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. <laughs> you know, do you know that you won't love any more, anyone more than you love you? He says no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. How many know that you're called to cherish your flesh? You know, Romans 6 says, the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. How many know there's flesh, there's old flesh that's died in the baptismal tank that you're not supposed to set your mind on, and there's the new flesh in the new creation. And you can't love any, anyone more than you love you. As a matter of fact, you, your love for you is the standard in which you love everyone else. He said, husbands, love your wives as you love yourself. And then he said, no one ever hated, nourish, uh, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourish and cherishes it. How do you know if you're nourishing and cherishing the right flesh? Well, Galatians 5 says that the deeds of the flesh are something. <laughs> Dang it, I hate this. You know what? As soon as your acne clears up, your mind gets fuzzy. <laughs> now, the deeds of the flesh are evident. These are immoralities, impurities, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like this. Listen, if you're nourishing the flesh that looks like that, that's the old man. And how many of you know that if you're doing that, if you're doing that, then that's not the flesh you're supposed to nourish. As a matter of fact, that's called necromancing. You're talking to the dead. But when you're nourishing the flesh, the right flesh, how do you know you're nourishing the right flesh? Because the more you nourish it, the more it benefits the people around you. Let me just end with a couple of more notes. If you don't love you, you won't let anyone else love you. And anytime someone loves you more than you love you, you'll sabotage your relationship with them. You know how I know that? I'll have a PhD in destroying my relationship with people who tried to love me. And what I'm getting at is this. God really loves you, and it's time that you start loving you. I want to finish with a story. A few years ago, um, I walked into the prayer house late, and there was already a prayer meeting going on with about 100 people in it, passionately praying. And it was one of those seasons in Kathy and my life when we were really broke. Has anyone ever been really broken here? Three of us. Awesome. And when I walked in, Pastor Bill handed me an envelope, what looked like an envelope, and I, I put it in my pocket. He said, well, look at it. I pulled it out, and it was a check for $3,000. Now, at this time in my life, $3,000 was like $3 million. Anyone ever been there? 
I open the check, and I go, huh? It's a prayer meeting, right? I start yelling. Someone gave me $3,000. You know, real heavenly-minded guy I am. And Bill goes, look again. And I look down, and it was $30,000. Someone had given me a check for $30,000. I couldn't believe it. I almost passed out. And the signature on the check, I didn't, I didn't, couldn't recognize. I didn't know who that person was. Well, to shorten the story, we found out a couple of days later that the man who, who gave me that check was just a man who came to a class I did, sat in the back, never talked to him. He got a, a huge inheritance. He had a dream, and in the dream, God told him, "Give Chris thirty thousand dollars of your inheritance." So he gave me the money, gave Kathy and I the money, and then Kathy and I bought him a nice card. We could afford a three-dollar card after that. And <laughs> thank you card, and we, 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 we gave him the thank you card, and, and everything was well. But then a really strange thing happened. Wherever Eli was, I wasn't. So we have a pretty large sanctuary. Stays cool all the time. <laughs> Our conferences, you'll stay cool all the time. And wherever Eli, if Eli came in the, into the sanctuary this way, I'd see him. I'd walk all the way around. I'd go through that door. I'd see him in the hallway. I'd turn around and go the other way. And I did that for six months. And then one day, Bill's preaching, and I'm in the front row waiting for Bill to finish. And Bill keeps circling the airport. And I've got to go to the bathroom. <laughs> so I'm waiting and waiting. And finally, you know, have you ever waited too long? I'm waiting too long, and I decide I better go to the bathroom so I don't go in my pants. So I get up, and I run to the bathroom, and I get to the bathroom door, and I open the door, and Eli's there, but his back's to me. So I close the door, and I start running 45,000 square feet to the next bathroom, and on the way there, I have this thought, something's wrong with me. (laughs) I know it seems obvious but to you, but it didn't to me. You know, somebody once said, adversity will introduce a man to himself. And I just got introduced to me. I got home that night, and I couldn't sleep. I was thinking and thinking and thinking and thinking and thinking. You know the lowest level of life is? You don't know that you don't know. The next level of life is you know you don't know. Did you get that? And I just got promoted to, I know, I don't know. And I'm laying there, and I laid there, I don't know what, how long I laid there, but I laid there till the sun started to come up. I remember that the sun was coming up, and I had this thought, maybe I should pray. <laughs> <laughs> I know it seems obvious, but it didn't to me at the time. And so I said, God... I think there's something wrong with me. He says, "Uh uh-huh. I said, do you know what it is? (laughs) How many know if God doesn't know what it is, you're in big trouble? (laughs) Can you imagine how Adam felt when God cried, Adam, where are you? (laughs) I mean... 
If God can't find you, you are lost. God, I think there's something wrong with me. Uh-huh. Do you know what it is? Uh-huh. Will you tell me? This is what he said to me. Do you really want to know? Do you really want to know? That's a good question. Do you really want to know? You know, when God asks you a question, he typically knows the answer. He said, do you really want to know? I laid there for five minutes because denial is a beautiful thing. I'm not talking about denial. I'm talking about denial. (laughs) So finally, about five minutes went by, and I finally said, I really want to know. And he said, here's your problem. He said, Eli gave you $30,000, but you don't love yourself $30,000 worth, and you're afraid that if Eli gets to know you, he'll be sorry he gave you the money. And I laid there, stunned I said God what do I do he said why don't you try this why don't you try loving you as much as I love you and when you do and when you do you'll be well stand please (laughs) my grandfather got saved the year before he died My grandfather was an atheist his whole life. I led him to Jesus. And three days later, he, I get a phone call. Now, my grandfather, I don't, some of you will relate to this. My grandfather, I didn't even know my grandfather knew how to dial the phone. <laughs> how many of you have you had grandparents like that? My grandfather didn't like the phone. And I get this phone call, and it's my grandfather. I pick up the phone. Hello? Hi, this is your grandfather. Get over here. Now. My grandfather knows how to use the phone. (laughs) I hung up the phone, and I drive over to my grandfather's house. It's about 10 minutes from my house, and I get there, and he goes, come into the bedroom. My grandfather's never behaved like this. I go in the bedroom, I sit on his bed, and my grandfather begins to talk to me about the Bible you got to understand, my grandfather's been saved three days. He's never, never been in a church building, except for at a wedding. And he's never read the Bible. But two angels came to my grandfather for six months and taught my grandfather the Bible, would sit on his bed and talk. My grandfather wouldn't know an angel if the stinking thing ran it over him. (laughs) For six months, every day for six months, two angels came at lunch and taught my grandfather the Bible. Isn't that amazing? My grandfather had a brain tumor. It didn't affect his thinking, but it was in his optical nerve, and it made him blind. So after the angels taught him the Bible, he went blind. And then my grandfather, remember I told you he's a patriarch? He required all of my cousins and all of my uncles to read to him eight hours a day in two-hour shifts. (laughs) Till the day he died. They're reading him the Bible in two-hour shifts. We all took turns reading my grandfather the Bible in two-hour shifts. All these people who don't believe in God reading the Bible, two-hour shifts to my grandfather.
You know what? I just want to Ephesians 3 you. I want to pray that you would have an experience, that you would experience love that your brain could not understand. My, my goal tonight is that your brain would go, I don't know what's happening. Something's right here. So I want to pray for you. I want to pray that you would experience the love that my grandfather taught me before he even knew God. And that you would begin to love you the way God loves you so you can love everyone else around you. Are you ready? I want you to close your eyes. I don't want you to picture my grandfather right now. Because that would be a distraction. Lord, I just pray right now that you would just release your love on these people. Lord, I mean it, that they would get intoxicated, like the Song of Solomon. They would get intoxicated with your love. Lord, that they would so realize that you love them, that they would start to love themselves. Lord, I pray that you would remove self-hatred, self-doubt. Lord, I pray that you would remind them that there's no sin that can separate them from you. There's no failure. There's no bad relationship. There's no divorce. There's no lie. There's, there's, there's no immoral sin. There's nothing that they could have ever done that would set them so far away from you that you could not love them. Lord, you love them because they're your kids. And Lord, I pray tonight that they would know by experience what they could never know through knowledge. Father, you told me to share this tonight. So I just trust that they would experience what I experienced that night when you said, why don't you start loving yourself? Lord, I thank you that every time that you talk to us, you give us the ability to do what we couldn't do one second before you said it. So Lord, I pray tonight that this prophetic declaration, God loves you, would go right to the core of their being and would alter their course of history. That their history would become his story. In Jesus' name. Thank you very much.